You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, here from New York City. I'm editor-at-large at The Diplomat and a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. I'm delighted to be joined by Hervé Lemayu from the Lowy Institute. Hervé, thank you so much for joining me back on the podcast today. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on the, pod- on the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you back. And uh, some of our uh, longer-term subscribers might be familiar with your work. Um, the reason we have uh, Hervé back on the show today is to talk about the latest iteration of the Lowy Institute's Asia Power Index for 2020. And for listeners who aren't familiar, uh, this is basically the Lowy Institute's uh, and and specifically Hervé's attempt to um, taxonomize and classify all of the Asia-Pacific's or the Indo-Pacific states in terms of their relative power rankings. Um, And it's a really impressive effort. Um, I'll add a link in the show notes to the interactive website where uh, viewers are able to browse the relative um, content and take a look at the specific factors uh, affecting uh, relative change from previous years. Um, But Hervé, obviously this year is a particularly interesting one to uh, undertake a project like this, uh, because of course we do have a once in a hundred year global pandemic, um, the first really in the information age, uh, so to speak, and that has had some dramatic implications for the relative power of various Asian states. Um, I was wondering um, if you could give us a little bit of your top line observations on how exactly COVID-19, in your view, has affected um, the First of all, the undertaking, I mean, just methodologically, uh, I know we talked a little bit about this when I had you on the podcast last year, uh, mm-hmm. just in terms of the methodology, but but how did you go about accounting for the pandemic's implications for uh, relative power shifts in the region? Sure thing. Yeah, it was methodologically uh, a very challenging year. Uh, and in fact, we had to delay the launch by five months in order to try to capture the most recently available data. Um, and to have a serious look at our 10-year forecast for military spending and GDP in light of the impact that the pandemic has had on the economic fundamentals of countries in the region. And, uh, and perhaps unsurprisingly, um, but, uh, but still, I mean, quite dramatically, the onset of COVID-19 has caused the biggest shakeup of power in the region outside of wartime, I would argue. Um, it's uh, it's really caused a, a race to the bottom between Asian powers. Um, it's in that sense uh, has both accelerated power shifts, but in a, in a downward direction, whereas in prior years, we were used to uh, global wealth and power moving eastwards. And in fact, in 2019, Asia had been poised to become larger than the rest of the world economy combined. So what was driving shifts in power uh, was essentially the, the, the fundamentally the, the, the growth of uh, Asian economies. And some were growing faster than others and some were investing in their military capability more than others. Um, but the point was the region at large. Uh, was broadly becoming more prosperous. The Asian century, though, has taken a very abrupt turn uh, in its fortunes. And what we see this year is that 18 countries in the Indo-Pacific experienced significant downward shifts in their relative power in 2020, Uh, none more so than the United States, which remains the most powerful player in the region, but whose lead over second place China has narrowed uh, by half in two years. So that is quite interesting. Not only has that lead between US and China narrowed, um, and China appears to be uh, accelerating the pace at which it's leveling with with the United States, but the region has also become more bipolar in the sense that the the, the distance between the U.S. and China 
versus everyone else um, has has increased uh, with the uh, with a notable drop in the relative power of both uh, India and Japan, who constitute our third and, and fourth ranked powers. Japan being third and India being fourth. Sorry, um, uh, they are sort of major powers. They stand in between uh, sort of our classification of middle powers and our superpowers, but both have dropped, and India has dropped to the extent that it actually no longer qualifies as a as a major power this year. Uh, just by a small margin, it is now a high-performing uh, middle power. So in other words, we're dealing with a more uh, uh, fractious uh, uh, region, a more disorderly one, a more dangerous one, um, and a more bipolar one as well. But uh, it doesn't look as if uh, a very fluid balance of power. It doesn't look as if the US and China have reached any degree of uh, stability um, uh, or understanding about what the endpoint in Asia might look like. Right. So, you know, your observations about the United States, I think, are are spot on. As I And I say this as someone um, obviously uh, living here at the moment and uh, someone who spends a lot of time watching the US posture in Asia. Uh, certainly, it's been striking to talk to friends and colleagues over overseas who've just been wondering, uh, you know, what happened uh, with the way the United States handled the pandemic. And, you know, I think uh, I think your um, report, the accompanying report to the launch of the Asia Power Index, uh, which I uh, took some time to read, I think has some compelling uh, explanations, of course, for places where the United States still retains significant advantages, primarily in the monetary policy realm, um, and just in terms of the United States overall um, continued centrality to the global financial system. But, you know, you also talk about the, the role of the U.S. administration's um, general unilateral outlook. Uh, could you say a little bit more about that, about how, uh, and I know you commented about this in the previous Power Index too, which is under the Trump administration, the U.S. has had a sort of, you know, quote, America first unilateralist approach to international affairs. How has the pandemic sort of intersected with that in a way that has resulted in this dramatic downgrade this year in uh, overall U.S. power in the Indo-Pacific? Hmm. Um, yeah, look, it's been an acceleration of existing trends on the one hand. So, you know, we, we've already observed the fact that um, the uh, Trump administration's uh, emphasis on uh, renegotiating free trade agreements, balancing trade flows one country at a time, engaging in trade wars, not simply with China, but some of its primary partners, uh, strategic partners in the region. Um, all that has uh, really not kept pace with the, the rise of uh, Chinese economic soft power, if that's what you can call it. Um, and, uh, and and so that sort of unilateral inclination um, has has hurt um, the U.S.'s standing in the region. Um, it's broader than that as well. I mean, if you look at uh, the way the, the, the global pandemic politics uh, played out this year, the urge to find a, a scapegoat, really, for the U.S.'s own uh, failures in its domestic handling of COVID-19 uh, meant that the U.S. withdrew from the World Health Organization um, sure, uh, the World Health Organization is imperfect, but the point is uh, it, it is a multilateral institution and uh, one in which you would hope the U.S. Uh, could maintain a level of influence because certainly it's China's desire to increase its influence over multilateral forums. Um, then there is uh, obviously the fact that um, the, the region at large has, has, has grown to adapt 
in the absence of U.S. Uh, regional leadership. So the, the resuscitation of the Trans-Pacific Partnership deal in 2018, minus the United States with 11, 11 uh, powers here in Asia, was a prime example of that. Um, the, the region is trying to uh, make do the best it can without U.S. leadership. I mean, another uh, multilateral trade agreement is uh, that's being um, that's being negotiated at the moment is the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, which includes uh, China but doesn't include the United States. So the U.S. has fallen further behind the major multilateral initiatives in this region, um, and it's and it's hurt its its uh, its overall clout. Where the U.S. has made uh, some inroads is in terms of um, its investment in in selective uh, multilateralism or uh, what you might call minilateralism, particularly in defense diplomacy. Uh, so that's the quadrilateral grouping um, and, and and other initiatives. Um, but these have not made up for the general loss of multilateral clout uh, that the U.S. has experienced uh, in the region. Mm-hmm. And of course, yeah, I mean, we you know we look at Asia and we see huge demand within the region for trade integration. Um, The U.S., uh, unfortunately, if you look at our domestic politics here, um, appetite for multilateral trade agreements just isn't there on either side of the aisle. Um, But, you know, speaking of domestic politics, and here, you know, we're we're recording this on October 19th, uh, just uh, two weeks before the U.S. election. So, uh, you know, this is sort of an obligatory question. But what I what I wanted you to reflect on a little bit is, you know, how much inertia is there in this um, dramatic downgrading this year in the U.S. position? Um, if if, as polls suggest, uh, we do indeed have a change of government in the United States and we have a more multilaterally inclined Democratic nominee in the form of Joe Biden uh, enter office in January 2021. Uh, do you see a scope for the U.S. to perhaps stage a dramatic comeback in the 2021 iteration of, of the Asia Power Index? Well, it's certainly what a lot of uh, uh, U.S. allies, including Australia, uh, hope um, uh, for the United States coming out of the election. Um, it, it would bolster their own uh, standing in the region to have a more engaged uh, United States that's capable of uh, stabilizing its uh, regional leadership. No one necessarily expects um, a return to the sort of Obama era. Um, uh, there are things the United States can do to shore up its position, and it's and it's noteworthy that a lot of the factors that led to the decline of U.S. Uh, influence and the loss of prestige in Asia are down to political choice more than structural forces, right? So they they are uh, theoretically reversible, and and there is much the U.S. can do um, when it comes to uh, the rise of China, however, I, I question whether the US can do very much about that. I think we are, one way or another, moving towards a situation where uh, the US has lost its unipolar moment, uh, China becomes a bipolar equal, um, perhaps the US can maintain a relationship where it's first among equal superpowers in Asia, or uh, China uh, um, narrowly edges it. But um, either way, I think neither the United States nor China will really be able to claim undisputed primacy in this region. Those days are behind us. And I think many of the US's allies uh, recognize that. But there are things that um, the U.S. and its allies and its partners can do to shore up uh, the collective balance of power mm-hmm. and the role of, of middle powers in a situation where neither the U.S. nor China can really dominate the other actually becomes more consequential. So you would hope that the United States realizes that its uh, its comparative advantages over China in Asia really lies in its network power. And this has been 
underutilized by the Trump administration, you would hope that that um, uh, uh, that we see an emphasis shift um, under a new uh, Biden administration. I would, though, say that there is a, a great deal of unease, even if Biden uh, w does prevail in the election. Um, in Australia, we follow U.S. politics religiously, um, and the margin of his victory will 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 either reassure us or uh, or worry us uh, mm -hmm. uh, about the durability of um, of uh, you know to what extent uh, you know Trumpism as a political movement has really been extinguished in the United States, or whether uh, f we we can expect uh, uh, four years of Biden presidency to be a temporary reprieve before before moving back into something that again looks more uh, more populist and and more unilateral and, and less predictable from the United States. That's right. Yes, I think uh, I think the thing that our allies and partners find most discomforting is uh, whiplash between, uh, you know, a, a Democratic administration and a Republican administration, and, and certainly um, a a landslide victory for Biden uh, with potentially changes in the uh, alignment of the U.S. Senate, for instance, I think sends a very different message than a much closer victory. Um, but, you know, enough um, enough about the United States uh, and China, because I think what's actually interesting is um, looking at uh looking at the analysis in the in the Asia power index I mean I think you know you you emphasize this which is that a lot of Asia's um, middle powers and smaller states in general have been the ones to come out of this last year both having improved their international reputation and having handled the pandemic well um, so it's been a fascinating year in particular for countries like uh, Taiwan New Zealand Vietnam um, and uh, you have this great graph on page eight of your report which I'll uh, link to in the show notes again uh, showcasing uh, you know on the y-axis international reputation on the x-axis domestic handling of the COVID-19 pandemic and those three countries that I just mentioned are all the way in the top right having um, significantly enhanced their standing in the world this year uh, by virtue largely of handling the pandemic very well um, so tell uh, so, so tell me a little bit about about these states you know we can also add uh, South Korea and Australia in there as well which are also in the top right quadrant albeit not not quite at the superlative uh, corner uh, that these other countries are. Um, but what what do you see as the um, as the longer term implications for these countries having handled the pandemic the way they have? Yeah, I, I think what it what it does is uh, remind us that um, uh, the ability of countries to enjoy a, a positive standing or, or reputation in the region begins with uh, domestic leadership and um, the competency of authorities uh, in dealing with large-scale public health challenges like a pandemic. But it doesn't need to be a pandemic. It can also be you know, climate change uh, or any number of other uh, non-traditional security threats um, to, the to the population. Um, and uh, we've seen this trend in a, for a while now. We, we've we've been underlying the point that the countries with the most um, internal uh, strength, the most uh, resilience, um, are tend to be smaller. Um, it's in a way, it's also easier, right? If you're Singapore and you're a city state of five. 6 million people, it's easier to uh, uh, to competently govern uh, a smaller country than it is to, to, to govern a country the size of the US or, or let alone the, the size of India or China. Um, and so these countries um, have excelled with this kind of challenge uh, in, in relative terms, obviously, because everyone's everyone's suffered in, in, in broader terms. Um, and uh, but what's interesting is that it, it, doing well or handling the pandemic well was a, was a sort of necessary but not sole condition 
for performing well in the Asia Power Index this year. So of the three exceptions to the rule of a race to the bottom, uh, only three countries gained uh, or improved their relative standing in the index this year. All three are middle powers. All three have done well in terms of uh, handling the pandemic, and that is Australia, Vietnam, and Taiwan. Uh, very diverse countries, obviously separated by quite a few rankings. Uh, Taiwan coming up from a very low base, Vietnam having overtaken New Zealand in, in ranked 12th this year, and Australia overtaking uh, South Korea ranked 6th. But it is um, interesting that not every country that has done well, so in the pandemic, um, such as New Zealand or South Korea, has done well in the index. I mean, they've actually both fallen behind. So, <clears throat> what we, yeah, the way we're styling this is that, uh, you know, you, you need to have your your ducks in order uh, in in terms of your domestic uh, ability to govern, but it takes more than that to uh, uh, to to shape the region um, uh, and the course of international events, um, and uh, and that's what both uh, or all three, what Vietnam, Taiwan, Australia, all illustrate, is that at the margins they have shaped the regional order, um, and that is why um, they uh, have improved their standing. Mm -hmm. So I mean. You know, when I when I take a look at the index and I um, I reflect on the sort of relative projections for what is to come ahead, I think one of the actual um, one of the most pessimistic projections actually concerns Japan, uh, which um, correct me if I'm wrong, but the index judges as perhaps the country that will take the longest to recover economically, at least from the effects of the pandemic. And of course, this comes on the heels of two two lost decades and an attempt. Uh, under former Prime Minister uh, Shinzo Abe to uh, invigorate the economy with uh, structural reforms um, to hopefully fix the malaise that had long um, gripped J uh, Japan's economy. What's um, What should we take away from this year's uh, analysis uh, of Japan's relative prospects for the coming years? Yeah, so I think the the more than any loss of reputation or prestige, what will matter more in coming years is the sequencing of economic recoveries from this uh, from from the pandemic. Um, it's it's perhaps surprising to audiences in the US and in Europe that even though Asia on, as a whole has done better uh, relative to other regions, certainly in the West, um, uh, at handling the health uh, pandemic, the economic fallout has been just as pronounced here. Um, and uh, for many advanced economies, it will take many more years uh, before they can reach uh, pre-COVID levels of, of economic output again. Um, whereas uh, for China, uh, it's really the only uh, global major economy that uh, will see a rebound in terms of its economic growth in 2020, despite the fallout, uh, the economic fallout from the pandemic in earlier quarters. So it is first off the marks um, and that will consolidate China's uh, economic lead in this region. Um, uh, Japan obviously faces a recession that's induced in the first instance by the pandemic, but obviously is exacerbated by um, an aging population, uh, uh, low productivity, and, and these structural dragging um, forces um, that uh, that will basically uh, slow down uh, its ability to, uh, to 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 kind of grow again at the levels it was uh, pre pre COVID. So in our uh, forecast, we don't expect Japan to really uh, come back to its pre COVID levels of, of economic output until 2027. Um, for the US, it's an open question. Much depends on the dynamism and recovery of its economy. Um, but we, we, we 
we come up with a, a sort of uh, quite a sort of pessimistic take that um, it might take until 2023 or 2024 before the United States um, recovers its pre-COVID levels of um, economic output. Um, so the sequencing matters, but it's also it's not just the sequencing; um, it's also um, uh, uh, developing economies who will uh, grow either in 2020 or 2021. They still have, though, been hardest hit in relation to their growth trajectories uh, pre-pandemic. So uh, India, for example, one of the world's largest emerging economies, um, uh, nevertheless, uh, will be, uh, we expect it to be 13% uh, smaller by the end of this decade than we had forecast for India uh, last year for 2030. Um, and that means that the, the power or the economic power differential between China and India has actually expanded as a result of the pandemic. Um, uh, and, uh, and India will, um, in effect, only reach about 40% of China's uh, economic output by the end of this decade, as opposed to the 50% we had predicted for it. Mm -hmm. uh, last year. Um, and that is also reinforcing the sort of bipolarity of Asia. Right, right, right. So, you know, coming back to China a little. So uh, from the index, uh, you know, I take it that China is relatively holding fast on many measures of, of its overall power this year. But one of the interesting ones um, has been China's general um, diplomatic influence across the region. And, uh, you know, a few weeks before um, or a little over a week before uh, the Lowy Power Index was released, um, Pew released survey data showing uh, perceptions of China, uh, not only in the Indo-Pacific region, but around the world, um, had declined over the course of the pandemic, partly as a result of uh, affirmative efforts by China uh, diplomatically, uh, you know, the so-called wolf warrior diplomacy, which hasn't gone over so well around the world, uh, but also generally reactions to how Beijing handled the COVID-19 pandemic uh, early on in, in January, uh, but also since then. Uh, talk a little bit about that, uh, because, you know, I take it in your um, uh, on uh, in your analysis, uh, you come down on China's diplomatic influence in the region still uh, outclassing that of the United States. Uh, and I think that's an interesting observation. So how how is um, how likely is China's uh, overall diplomatic hit from the way it managed the pandemic uh, early on and its other diplomatic behaviors? How is that going to uh, affect things, uh, do you think, going forward uh, into into next year uh, and the years to come? Mm. Well, I, I think I can't emphasize enough how much of a lost opportunity the pandemic was for Chinese uh, regional diplomacy. In a, in a different world, it, it could have made use of this um, opportunity as, as a way of, well, firstly, uh, acknowledging and rectifying the fact that um, uh, the pandemic had originated from China. So you're absolutely right. I mean, we, we don't just look at uh, what countries have in terms of their uh, economic size, but also what countries do with what they have in terms of their uh, diplomacy, in terms of their economic relationship, in terms of their defense networks in the region. And on these um, measures, uh, China does uh, lag, at least in terms of defense diplomacy um, and, and conventional diplomacy. It um, has reached a near level parity with Japan, which is ranked second in the region for diplomatic influence. Uh, really, the only reason that China is ahead on diplomatic influence uh, in Asia speaks more to uh, the failures of, of, of US regional leadership than it does the successes of uh, Chinese uh, 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 diplomatic leadership uh, in the region. In fact, I mean, if you break down our diplomatic influence uh, measure, uh, we have a number of indicators, uh, most of which are quantitative. So we look at um, multilateral influence and we assess that uh, by uh, looking at UN voting alignments, uh, contributions to 
multilateral development banks, um, the size and reach of diplomatic networks. But among uh, a subset uh, of, of diplomatic influence indicators, we have actually asked a number of uh, policymakers and experts uh, from the region um, to give us their assessment of um, the capacity of uh, various powers to exercise uh, political and regional leadership. And it's interesting that this year Japan ranks ahead of China uh, for its ability to uh, uh, conduct global uh, uh, diplomatic leadership, and 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 Singapore of all countries uh, ranks ahead of China for its uh, regional leadership. So something has gone wrong for China, and this is a a missed opportunity. I mean, I I can't emphasize that enough. Um, in in a different world, in a sort of post factual history. Um, you could envisage uh, a situation where uh, China, at the very uh, you know, early, very early days of the of the rapid global spread of COVID, um, um, having acknowledged um, its its uh, its its problems or its its uh, uh, failures in um, in reporting uh, accurate data in a, on a timely basis to convey the severity of the scale of the challenge, um, you could envisage a, a world where uh, China. Uh, really led in terms of regional recovery efforts, um, but it has not done so. In fact, we've seen uh, from China the rise of a far more belligerent tone in its diplomacy through wolf warrior diplomacy. We've seen threats of um, of economic coercion leveled at various uh, countries in the region, including uh, Australia, uh, its largest uh, trading. Well, for Australia, China is 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 its largest trading partner, um, and and for a variety of reasons. Um, uh, uh, China is uh, or has emerged from this crisis uh, uh, diplomatically diminished. Now, the U.S. Uh, has done even worse, and that's the, you know it's not great news for either superpowers, but it's it's worse news for the United States. So uh, uh, I, I don't want to um, uh, mislead audiences into thinking that simply because the U.S. is behind on on China on China on, in terms of diplomatic influence that China is doing well. I, I don't think uh, either superpower is doing particularly well at the moment. Right. Yeah, it's not a uh, not a happy year for either either the U.S. or China. Um, so, you know, just to, just as I close out, I mean, obviously, I think a lot of this sets up 2021 as a pivotal year will be the year that really determines the pace of recovery and relative change from what has been a very difficult year for many countries power rankings. As you note, the, uh, the large majority of states in Asia have taken a hit. Um you know, I, I suspect I know what your answer is going to be, but I mean, what is the most important thing for most of these countries to really focus on in, in 2021? I mean, um, you know, my guess would be getting the pandemic under control. And obviously, you know, there mm. are other variables like the availability of a vaccine and the internationalization of a vaccine. But um, is there uh, is there is there something else that we should be thinking about uh, looking forward to next year? Um, it sort of depends on, on uh, but, but for every country, it'll be a different set of challenges. But certainly, I think if there's a general trend, it is that the region at large and perhaps the world is far more inward looking. Um, you have to uh, tend to your own wounds first before you can start um, uh, projecting uh, influence into the region again. Um, and those that uh, recover fastest will be in the, in the best position uh, to exercise that leadership on, 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 you know, on the Asian stage. And now, uh, when it comes to a country like Australia, 
it's really interesting, even though we've done well uh, in the index this year, um, if you look at the, the bottom line, our economic contraction is going to be worse than um, either Vietnam or Taiwan. Um, and a lot of that is to do with the fact that we've dropped out of the demographic Goldilocks zone. I mean, we, we are one of the few advanced economies alongside the United States that still that has high productivity and still enjoys a growing working age population. But our migrant intake has dropped to negative levels uh, for the first time since the Second World War. So that has the potential, if that continues, if that trend continues, to really undermine the fundamentals for Australia as a young and growing middle power. That means that um, if we don't um, alter that trend within the next coming years, that's very a very pressing challenge. Um, uh, we will be a, a, a smaller, uh, less secure, poorer nation. And um, uh, so we, we'll have to watch out for that uh, when it comes to Australia. Other countries, uh, it, it, again, it depends on, on, on how severely affected they've been from the pandemic, but certainly South Asia and much of developing Asia has to deal with the emergence of a new uh, class of COVID poor. I mean, there'll be 78 million more people that fall under the international poverty line of uh, living on $1.90 a day uh, as a direct result of this pandemic. So that alone generates uh, all manner of, um, of uh, inequality and development challenges. Um, and I expect that much of emerging Asia will be focused on these issues more than they are on, on traditional security for the year ahead. Mm-hmm. Well, um, Hervé, I really want to thank you for uh, joining me on the Asia Geopolitics podcast to uh, go over the important results of, of this latest effort. So congratulations, uh, and thanks again for coming back. Thank you for having me, Ankit. I always enjoy being on your show. Absolutely. Uh, so my guest is Hervé Lemayu. He's the director of the Power and Diplomacy Program at the Lowy Institute, uh, having recently published the 2020 Asia Power Index, uh, which again, I will link to in the show notes. So for listeners, if you've been a subscriber to the podcast, but you haven't yet left us a review, we'd really appreciate if you could do that. It really helps get the word out about the show. And if you haven't yet subscribed, please do so. We'd, uh, we'd love for you to keep up with uh, future coverage on, on this podcast. Finally, before we close, a quick note from our sponsor. This episode of the Asia Geopolitics Podcast is brought to you by Diplomat Risk Intelligence, or DRI. DRI is the Consulting and Analysis Division of The Diplomat, the Asia-Pacific's leading current affairs magazine. Since its launch in 2002, The Diplomat has been dedicated to quality analysis and commentary on events and trends in Asia and around the world, and is now one of the most respected publications covering the region. DRI inherits this approach and offers clients in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors worldwide access to an exclusive network of subject matter experts and analysts. Whatever your needs in the wider Asia-Pacific region, DRI can offer the knowledge and expertise necessary to anticipate and manage geopolitical and geoeconomic risks. For more information, please visit dri.thediplomat.com. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back soon with more.